Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, in just a few hours, you're going to have a whole new allotment of 8,760 hours that will make your new year. Or if you prefer some 250,000 minutes that will mark your 560,000 minutes, excuse me, that will mark your new year. It's something that you've never seen yet. It's a place you've never been yet. But you're about to walk into it. Now, typically, New Year's Eve is a time of evaluation. It's been that way for a long time. Even I notice myself today sort of waxing melancholy and a little bit philosophical as I look back over my year and got my journal out and looked back over what I had written the year before and before and thought about where I was now and where the Lord wanted to bring me in the future. Now, this whole concept of a new year and evaluating and making a new year's resolution, this has a long history in our Western culture. It seems that we can trace it back to about 153 B.C. when the Romans, in their belief system, looked to one of their gods by the name of Janus, J-A-N-U-S, who was the two-bearded, twin-faced god that was the god of the gates or the god of the entry. He looked backward and he looked forward. He could look in both directions. So we could see those who were coming in and those who were going out. And since he was the guardian of the gates or of the entries or of the beginning of a journey, he was thought about and commemorated every day for a while and thought about and commemorated every month and certainly every year, so much so that the Romans decided to name their first month of their calendar after Janus, hence January. That's where it comes from. And back then, the Romans imagined on December 31st at midnight, Janus looking backward at the year that was behind, as well as looking forward to the year that was ahead of them. And so they took solace in Janus being able to see in both directions. And then, as years moved on, About 46 B.C., Julius Caesar decided to make January 1 the first day of the new calendar year. So we have the Julian calendar marked after Julius Caesar in 46 B.C. A time of looking back, a time of looking forward. But you know, looking back can be frustrating. It can be confusing. It can certainly be dangerous. If you're trying to move forward while looking backward, you and I can only look in one direction. It's frustrating to look backwards while trying to move forward. And so, what we're called to do, rather, I think, than spending too much time looking back and thinking, oh, what a bummer this year has been, what a drag, those things that have happened, and instead of dwelling on them, to spend most of our energy looking forward. For if we could read Paul the Apostle 
as he made a great resolution, don't think he necessarily made it at the beginning of the year, but he made a great resolution in Philippians chapter 3, said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in God in Christ Jesus. So, the past, like they say in New York, forget about it. Okay, it's good to look back a little bit only for the purpose of getting our bearings to know where we've come from, what mistakes not to make again, no problem having the past as a reference point, but don't let it become an anchor. If it becomes a diving board, a springboard, great. If it becomes an anchor and weighs you down, it's bad for you. Let it go. So here we are. We're on the edge of a new year. And there's a passage of scripture I want to read as the children of Israel were on the edge of a brand new season, a brand new land that God said he would give to them. So I'm going to read to you just a few verses out of the book of Deuteronomy. These are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain between Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as a commandment to them. After he killed Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who dwelt in Azeroth, in Endri, on this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough in this mountain. Turn and take your journey. And go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains, in the lowlands, in the south, and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and their descendants after them. It's a brand new day for Israel. A day that should have happened 38 years before this. You see, the children of Israel should have occupied the land 38 years before they did, before God told them again, Now it's time to really do this thing. They've been wandering for 38 years before they reach this point. Now you remember the story, but let me just refresh your memory till we get to this point. It was an 11-day journey, as we read, from Kadesh, from Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, the gate or the entrance to the new land. It should have taken them 11 days. It took them almost 40 years. Years. 
Why? Well, because right when they were at the edge of the land, ready to go in and occupy, to take what God had given to them, an infection spread throughout the camp. You see, the spies came back, bringing grapes and pomegranates so large that two men had to carry one huge bunch of grapes. And the spies came back, and in Numbers 14, they said, Truly, the land which we go in to possess is a land of milk and honey, great abundance. It's amazing. It's better than we ever thought it would be. But we also saw the dudes that live there. And they're big, honking dudes. Well, that's sort of a paraphrase. It really doesn't say that in the New King James. It says, the Anakim are there, the sons of Anak, these huge giants. The Amorites are in the south. The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Termites, all of them were there. (laughs) And the people started wondering why God brought them to the land until Joshua and Caleb quieted the people and said, okay, there's giants, but we have, a, we have a giant God and we have a giant promise. He said he'd go before us. I say we take him at his word and we go in and we take the land. But because that infection spread throughout the camp and people did not believe in God's promise, this is what they said. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes and we're like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And so it says, the heart of the people melted. There was no more spirit left within them. And so God said, fine. Then you'll all die in the wilderness. And eventually, your children, the very ones that you were complaining would be hurt and not taken care of, I'll take your children to possess the land. So here they are again, 38 years later. This is now not Numbers, not Leviticus, not Exodus. This is Deuteronomy. This is the second time Moses shares some of the things he's sharing, now with a whole new generation. By the way, Deuteronomy means simply second law. Deuteros, second. Namas, law. The law had been given once, detailed by Moses to the children of Israel. Moses now gives the speech a second time. It's the second giving of the law. And you know what I've discovered? I sometimes need to hear God's word a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and many, many times. And there have been times where I've read scriptures, and after years of reading them, it finally gets through my thick skull. I needed it repeated. In fact, more than getting through my thick skull, it needs to make the 12-inch journey from my head to my heart. And sometimes that repetition, that reiteration. And so Moses rehearses the second time. Here we are again. Now, we've been at this mountain a long time. Let's get going. You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. It could be that during this last year, You haven't really gone forward. You've just gone in circles. You've wandered. 
for a year or two or twenty. And the Lord would say to you tonight, okay, you've done this and you've been here long enough. You've been at this mountain long enough. I've got something new for you. It's time now to get going. Here's the deal. You cannot cruise in the Christian life. There's no neutral gear. You are either going forward or else you find yourself going backward. It's sort of like pedaling a bicycle uphill. The moment you stop and just say, you know, this is hard work. I just want to put it in neutral and cruise. You'll go backwards. So, again, here's the deal. You are either growing deeper, becoming richer spiritually, becoming stronger this year than you were last year, or the very opposite. You're becoming shallower and poorer and weaker than you were a year ago. There's no middle ground. They've been wandering. They really haven't been walking forward. And God says, okay, time's up. It's now time to go in and take possession of the land that I have given to you. Mountains are great. Mountaintop experiences are great. When I was 18 years of age, I gave my life to Christ. And I don't know what it was, but when I was 18 and I was reading the Bible back then, I was not only a literalist like I still am today, but I was almost a hyper-literalist. And so Moses went up to the mountain to hear from God, and I thought, I've got to find the nearest mountain to go up and hear from God. So this is the truth. I took an old handle of a rake because it was the closest thing I had at home to a staff. See, this is, this is all Cecil B. DeMille burned in my head. And I walked up in Apple Valley, up the nearest mountain, with a piece of paper, a pencil, a staff, no robe. That was a little over the top. But I just walked up to the top, and I sat there with my pencil and my paper and said, Okay, Lord, go for it. Speak to me. You spoke to Moses. Speak to me. And here's what's really cool about the Lord. Here I am in my naivete, not presuming to get another revelation of Scripture, but I really did feel like the Lord spoke some very specific things at 18 years of age that he wanted me to do and to prioritize in my life at the time. And I wrote them down. It was wonderful up on top of that mountain. I felt really close to God. I felt like I was having a great, rich, deep experience of fellowship. But I couldn't stay up there forever. I eventually would have to come down off that mountain to put into practice the very things that I felt the Lord speak to me. You have to go down from the mountain. You have to live in real life. Put them into practice. We love to go on retreats, don't we? We typically go up the mountain, up to Glorietta, and we spend a few days, whether it's a men's group or a woman's group or different fellowships, and the mountaintop experience is great, but you eventually have to come down to real life and put it into practice. Peter, James, and John went up to a mountain and had a great, great experience of seeing Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah 
And it was so amazing, Peter wanted to live there forever. Let's just build three condominiums, one for you, Moses, and Elijah, and we'll just camp out here. Well, I like this up here. And it was God the Father who had to say, basically, Peter, quiet. Quit talking. Button it up, buddy. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. So, they've been going around Mount Sinai long enough. God says, get going. So, he tells them the law. That's Deuteronomy. Then, Joshua 1 is the crossing. And here's just a few verses there. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel, and every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, down to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Now they're on the brink. They're really on the edge, ready to cross over. If they were to look back, they would have to quite honestly say, it's been tough out there in the desert. It's been hard. We've had hard experiences. We've had to trust God. We have had to lean on him when life looked impossible. Now Moses is dead. It's been hard. But the Lord's been with us. In fact, they would say that the Lord used those hard times to shape their present reality. And I know you're looking back at this year. And for some of you, you're saying, I can't wait till 2008 is done. It's been a bad year. It's been a hard year. But are you able to say if it's been a really hard year that it's been a good year? You say, Skip, why would you ask such a question? Why would you dare peer into my life if I've had a hard year and ask if it's been a good year? Because I'm asking you tonight if you still believe Romans 8.28. Are you able now, at the end of a hard year, the economy's been in a downturn, for you to say, yep, I still believe that all things work together for good to those who love God, to the ones who are the called according to his purpose. God is good. All the time. Yeah, that'll become our mantra more and more, I believe, as the, as the year progresses. It's been hard, but it's been good. They would have to say that. Hard, but good. I hope you don't expect in 2009, maybe you become a Christian recently, you think, well, I become a Christian, so everything's going to be perfect. No problem. No bumps in my road. I would say, why do you believe that? Well, I'm a good person. You think? Well, let's just say you are a good person. Expecting not to be treated badly because you're a good person is sort of like expecting an angry bull not to attack you just because you're a vegetarian. 
Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to God's people at the hand and control of God. And when they do, I don't know that we can call them bad things. If they're in the hands of a loving God and he's used that as a tool to shape us and make us better, can we really say they're bad when God has used them for good? Well, that's where the children of Israel were at. But but this is what I want you to notice as we meditate on this. There's one verse, and I want you to notice the tenses. Okay, you English majors, you college grads, what is the tense of this phrase as I read it to you? Every place, here it is, that the sole of your foot will tread upon. What tense is that? That's future tense, right? Every place the sole of your foot will tread. It anticipates the future they're going to walk. But listen to this. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Now, what tense is that? Well, that's interesting. In in the same sentence, God is using future and past as if to say, when you walk over the land, you're going to discover it's already yours. It's a done deal. It's not like, I'm going to conquer the territory for God. You're going to discover all you have to do is walk on it. And as you walk on it, you can't say, I'm amazing. I took a step. I I put one foot in front of the other. I am like so cool. That was hard work. Here goes another one. Oh, wow, that was hard. No, you're going to walk there, future tense, and you're going to discover... It's already been given as a gift. God has already gone before you. And then he gives them the boundaries even, both in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, of where they're to walk and what they're to do. Every place the sole of your feet shall tread, I have given it to you. This is what I want you to pick up on for the new year. God has made provision for you. But there must be an appropriation by you. God's made the provision. Here it is. You have to cooperate with him, participate with him, and walk in all those places that the Lord has promised. There's thousands of promises in the scripture. But you've got to walk in them. And when you walk in them, you'll discover God has already given that. And I appropriate it. There is a fallacy, there is a mistake that some Christians live with. It's sort, of, it's sort of this mentality. Well, God knows where I am. He knows my address. And if he wants to do whatever he wants to do, he can find me. He can, he can just lay it on me. You have grossly misunderstood a key ingredient to the Christian life. And that's partnership. God's into partnership. God's into saying... Listen, I have this for you. It's already done. It's yours. I've given it to you. But I'm not going to just find you and lay it on you. You have to partner with me by taking those steps of faith. And you'll discover every step you take in the land allotment that I have provided for you, I have given it to you. The question is why? And and that's what I want to answer in the next couple of moments together. Why is it that God doesn't just 
because he's sovereign and because he's powerful, just pour out and lay on and find us and do what he wants regardless of our leaning and trusting and stepping. Two reasons. Reason number one, let's call it preparation. Preparation. You know, at some point in your journey, you're going to die or be raptured. But this life on earth is going to end. And you'll be with Christ forever in heaven. And there in heaven, the Bible says you and I are going to rule and reign with him. Rule and reign with him. So you are going to partner with him, ruling and reigning, in eternity. So that what we do now on earth is preparation for what we're going to do forever in heaven. In fact, I'll even say this. To the extent that we learn that and do that now is the same extent that we'll do that in heaven. I think that's what Jesus said. I'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in the little things, therefore I will make you ruler over many things. You've done it here, you've learned it here. And think of it, this life on earth is is a tiny little blip on the screen of your eternal existence. If you live whatever amount of years, even if you live what we call a good long life, you know, we sometimes say, well, that person died at such a young age, they didn't get to live a full life. Let's say you live to be 200 years of age. I don't think that's possible these days, but let's just say you could live over 100. Okay, now think of eternity and billions upon billions upon trillions upon quadzillions upon whatever illions of years. And there somewhere, if you can find it, is your little 120-year lifespan. Nothing. So, now is preparation. We walk, we grab a hold of the promises, we walk in them. Because we're partnering with him and learning what that is going to be like in the future. There's a second reason. Not preparation, but association. You know what? God just likes to hang with you. I hope you learned that beautiful secret of fellowship. You know, it could, it could have been that when God gave them the promised land, there were no enemies, there were no giants, they didn't have to walk, they could have just stood at the edge of the river, and God could have had the Canaanites just sort of give them the keys to the land, saying, here, here's the keys to all of our houses and all of our chariots and our three tent homes and two camel garages, they're all yours. We just surrender. No, they had to actually cross, walk, fight, move, believe, step by step. So that each step was a step of faith. Okay, I'm taking this step, but Lord, I'm trusting that you've given this to me. Here's another step. Okay, I'm doing it, but I'm trusting that you've given this to me. Each is a partnership. We do it with him, not apart from him, or not him just doing it. It's a partnership because he loves to do things with us. I'll never forget the afternoon years ago when my son was five, maybe six years of age, and I was building a little fence out back, a little gate. And I was getting the tools ready, getting the wood ready. I said, hey, Nate, you want to help Daddy build a fence? He said, yeah. We went in the garage, I started cutting the wood, nailing the wood, 
And he was busy playing with the screwdriver, <laughs> kicking the hammer, twirling around, singing songs every now and then. I'd say, hey, Nathan, bring me that hammer. He'd, he'd bring me the hammer. And then he'd go back to what he was doing now. Did I need him to help build that gate? No. Truth be told, not at all. But I loved the association. I loved the few minutes we spent together. Association. We do it with him. So they crossed the land. They were to be associated with him. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. How do you take the land? We've spoken very generally and metaphorically. Take the new land, take the territory, etc. What does that mean exactly? How do you do that? Well, number one, I think as a Christian, if you look around your world and look around the church that you're in, and you see the need, and you say, there, there's, a, there's a hole there that needs to be filled. There's a need that needs to be met. When you see the need, or God puts something on your heart, and you really sense that he's doing it when you see the need, it's a good indication he wants you to walk there. You see, God was telling Moses, or, or Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses the great servant of the Lord had died, and Joshua, Moses' assistant, saw that. And God raised him up to meet it. And I would say, if you see the need, it's a good indication God wants you to arise and walk through that portion. And that's a principle we've all always followed. So if somebody says to us, well, I think this church needs more people praying, good, go home and pray. Well, I mean, like more people than me. Good. Go home to pray that God will bring more people to pray with you. I think this church needs to be more sensitive to the poor. Good. Go out and feed the poor. Go out and do what God's put on your heart to do. And then as the natural course of fellowship, you can share that and maybe others will follow. And that's how we have seen ministries raised up. You see the need, then seize what you seize. You see the need, seize the opportunity, and walk in it, and do it, and appropriate. And then next year, we'll be able to hear of more great things God has done. Would you pray with me? And as I pray, I'm going to ask the communion board to come, and we're going to distribute the communion. Our Heavenly Father, we've gathered here at the end of one year, facing the beginning of another we have these elements of communion that speak of the end of one life that brought the beginning of a new one. That Jesus Christ would enter the grave, conquer death, resurrect, giving hope to billions of people who in placing their trust in Jesus would have a new beginning. So that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. We're facing a new year, a new chance, a new opportunity. But it's because we have new life and we approach it with hope. We're facing a, 
economy that is turned down and an outlook that people have that is turned down. And so we come here to turn up our hearts towards you and to say that we trust in you. And we give our praise and worship to you. Lord, as we take these elements, we recognize we're all one family bound in a common hope by the blood of Christ shed for our sins. Lord, I pray that those who take these elements would be those who know you personally and have been changed by you. And just really quickly, as our heads are bowed, as we're praying, maybe maybe you don't even know Christ tonight. Maybe you'll come to church every now and then or do some spiritual thing. But you search your heart deeply right now and you ask yourself, are you really a Christian? Are you sure that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? Because if you're not sure, you make sure before the night is over. Or maybe you've wandered away from his will, away from him. You've done your own thing and your life tonight is so empty. You've been wandering like the children of Israel for so long. And it's time for you to leave the mountain and move on in a relationship with him and a recommitment to him. If that is the case, while we are praying, would you raise your hand up so I can pray for you before we take these elements? Raise it up all over the auditorium. I see hands. I see hands. Just raise your hand up. You're saying, yep, that's me. I need to give my life to Christ and have my sins forgiven and my past re Uh, taken away and a a new start ahead of me and new life promise. I want that. I want to walk in that. Anybody else? Raise those hands up. Okay, now, with those hands up, right where you are, say this to him, and you can say it out loud. Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I give you my life. I believe in Jesus Christ, who died for me, And rose from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.